I'd like to call your attention into the book of Exodus, 17th chapter, and we'll read from the 8th verse down to the rest of the chapter, that would be 16, so about 9 verses. And this is uh, titled in my Bible, The War with Amlek, and I'll get into that a little later on, but before I dive into this, I want to observe four key things, and I want you to see these things as I read this story, okay? First of all, I want you to understand, principally, the battle is the Lord's. The battle is the Lord's in this case, and he's going to demonstrate that. And the battle is always the Lord's, okay? Isaiah says, cry unto my people that her warfare is accomplished. Yes. Didn't say over. That would have been wonderful though, wouldn't it? But no, it's not over. But it is accomplished. So the first thing I want to observe, I want you to be looking for as I read the story, is that the battle is the Lord's. The second thing I want you to understand as we read this story is that nobody, the Lord accepted, nobody can do this on their own. We all, absolutely every one of us, Need help. We cannot do this on our own. Next, I want to observe that we all must do our part. Even though the battle is the Lord's, even though we can't do this on our own, we must all still do our part. And the fourth thing I want to want you to see in this, and this applies in everything. This is, this is a story epic, okay? The fourth thing I want you to observe is the victory is the Lord's. Okay? Even though we can't do it on our own, even though we must all do our part, the victory is always the Lord's. So if you'll turn with me to Exodus chapter 17, verse 8. Then came Amalek and fought with Israel in Rephindim. And Moses said unto Joshua, Choose out men and go out, fight with Amalek tomorrow. And I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses had said to him and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And it came to pass when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. And when he let it down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands were heavy. And they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat there on. And Aaron and Hur stayed up his hands, one on the one side, one on the one side, and one on the other side. And his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua discomfited Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. And the Lord said unto Moses, write this for memorial in a book, rehearse it in the ears of Joshua, for I will utterly put out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it Jehovah Nissi. For he said, because the Lord hath sworn that the Lord will have war with Amalek, 
from generation to generation. Now we know Amalek, these are the children of Esau. Not all of the children of Esau, but some of the children of Esau. And they observed Israel coming out of Egypt into Canaan's land. And the last thing they wanted was Israel into Canaan's land. Okay? So they attacked them. They laid in wait for them, and they attacked them. And this is why God commands Moses to tell Joshua to lead the Israelites in battle. This is their first battle out of Egypt. Okay? They didn't fight the Egyptians. God fought the Egyptians. Remember, the battle is always the Lord's. He doesn't need you. Do you remember when the children of Israel were afraid? The Lord put his angel in between him and them. And the Egyptians could not approach unto the Israelites because his angel, it was a cloud of fire by day or by a cloud of pillar of cloud by day and a cloud pillar of fire by night. And the Lord stood between his people and his enemies. And sometimes the Lord does that. And sometimes you know the Lord's doing that. And sometimes you don't even know the Lord is doing that. Okay. Remember the battle is the Lord's. He doesn't need you. He has chosen to call you to serve him. You don't, God does not need your service. You need to serve the Lord. But that's a different subject for a different day. Okay? So, slaves are not typically armed, are they? Okay? The Egyptians, would the last, they, they didn't want them to have male children. You can imagine they wouldn't have wanted them to have arms. Our armorers are are the people who know how to make arms. So they are going to war with farm implements. By and large, there might have been a sword around here or there. I'm I'm, I'm pretty sure Joshua had one. But for the most part, the children of Israel are going into battle with farm implements. Because that's what they've got. are, Are things they could find, you know. Spears they could quickly make or clubs they could fashion rapidly. It's not like they had a lot of time to prepare for this either. <clears throat> so, Moses takes the rod of God and he goes up into the mountain. Now, I don't know whether he's holding the rod or not. I, I have this picture of him holding the rod, you know. But I do know is that when he holds his hands up, Joshua prevails. And when he lets his hands down, Joshua was put to the worst. Now, there's nothing magic about Moses' hands, okay? This isn't some, uh, it's not that when the children of Israel see Moses' hands, they're, they're encouraged. This is God showing us, and more importantly, showing them that he, that the battle is his. Okay, he's fighting for them. So when Moses' hands are up, the Lord is actively engaged in the battle. When his hands are down, the Lord steps back. Why? So that we would know and that they would know that the battle is the Lord's. Do you remember the story of Gideon? And I'll try to get away from this quickly. Gideon assembled an army 
And God said, now you got to send some of them back. There are too, too many of them. If I deliver the Midianites that outnumber you, I think it was about a thousand to about a hundred to one. There were then Israel will claim that they delivered themselves by their own strength. But when he whittled down that army to three hundred, it was clear when he had attained the victory that it was God that won the victory. The other thing I want you to notice here now it doesn't say that God commanded Moses to hold up his arms, hands. But what I do want you to understand is sometimes the Lord is going to tell us to do some things that are pretty silly or appear unto us to be silly. You following me? Like marching around Jericho. That just sounds like silliness, right? Or, or, Or carrying a lamp in a vessel, in a clay pot, into battle. You know, if I'm going into battle, I don't want a lamp in a clay pot. You know, I want a sword, I want a spear, maybe a a bow. Those are better because, you know, anyway, that's a different story. But the point being, in Gideon's day, they went to battle with a lamp and a clay pot and a trumpet. Okay? Sometimes what the Lord commands us to do is not going to make sense to our human mind. That's because he's smarter than we are. A lot smarter than we are. Okay? And what he commands is always right. And he will bless us mightily in obedience. Just ask the children of Israel that got finished marching around Jericho. And he will be very angry when we disobey him. And talk to Brother Aiken about that. He can tell you all about it. Okay? If you don't know what I'm talking about, first couple of chapters of Joshua ought to clear that up pretty quickly. Now, Moses can't do it alone. Okay? No one can. No human can. I mean, all he's got to do is hold his hands up. Okay? That doesn't sound hard, does it? You try it. Okay? I mean, sure, it's easy to begin with. But over time, it gets heavy. And what the Lord's commanded us to do Oftentimes it seems easy at first, but then gravity sets in. You know what I'm talking about. Everywhere we go, gravity sets in and the world pulls us back and pulls us down. That's why we backslide. I'm beginning to think gravity is a biblical um, force here for that purpose, like backsliding. It is gravity that makes us backslide. It's gravity that pulls us down, that holds us down. And we've got to fight this, but we can't fight it alone. I can't fight it alone. You can't fight it alone. We, none of us, no human can do it alone. You can't fight the gravity of this world all by yourself. You know, sometimes when we're young, we think we're immortal and invincible. I remember long, long ago, when I used to think that way. But as you get older, reality sets in. What was it? I don't know if this is the Princess Bride crowd, but I know that there are definitely some prin- Okay, yes. At least one will get this. You know, it says, you've studied. So you know that man is mortal. Okay? And the more we experience we have, you know, the the more realistic our expectations are sometimes. 
And the more we know that we need help from time to time. And I remember hearing this preach when I was a little young man. And they were talking about how the preacher needs help. And he does. He does. They were talking about some of the deacon brethren. And they're invaluable, aren't they? You know, I remember this was about the time when I was at Landmark. And Brother Bartabal was still pastor, but his health was failing. You know, just before he moved his letter here, his high blood pressure medicine was just about to steal his mind. I don't know if you remember that at all. But that, that enderol he was taking was knocking him out. He, he was um, really having problems struggling and keeping things together. He could barely conduct a business meeting. Okay, He could preach the gospel, but he couldn't conduct a business meeting. Go figure that one out. Okay. But, um, so he was, his health was failing, and Brother Elsie Reynolds, his health was failing. Well, that was our pastor and our deacon. And I discovered I could do either job, but I could not do both. You know, no one can do it alone. We need help. And there are lots of people that step up to help the pastor in very visible ways. And we very much appreciate every one of them. But I don't remember anybody ever talking about Joshua. Okay? They kind of forgot. They forgot. They remembered all about Aaron and her, but forgot all about Joshua. Okay? But Joshua, he's on the battlefield with the armies of Israel. And and you might not be called to be a pastor. You might not have the the you might not have the wherewithal or to be a deacon. But every one of you is a soldier. In the army of Israel. Every last one of you. And you're called to put on the whole armor of God. Tail end of Ephesians. And you are called to fight the good fight every day. To be honest, you are where the rubber meets the road. You know, the focus is on what's going up on the mountaintop. But the battle is being fought on the battlefield. Okay? Your pastor needs help. He needs the help of the Holy Spirit, first and foremost. He needs needs all the assistance you can give him in every aspect of his ministry and his life. But that's on the mountaintop. Now, that's important because that gets a lot of visibility. You know, and when problems happen up on the mountaintop, that's big problems, right? But you are on the battlefield. You are where the rubber meets the road. You are fighting the good fight. And sometimes you're doing it with pitchforks. But you should be doing it with the whole armor of God. You're called to do it with the whole armor of God. And you do it every day whether you realize it or not. You do it every time you treat someone charitably when they didn't necessarily deserve it. Because the Lord knows you've been treated charitably by the Father when you didn't deserve it. Wives, every day you love your husband, you fight the good fight. Husbands, every time you put your wife first, 
Like Christ put you first. You fight the good fight. And don't be thinking I'm too small to fight the good fight. Because children, every time you obey your parents, you fight the good fight. And parents, every time you love your children like God loves you, you fight the good fight. In every way. Every time we study to show ourselves approved unto God a workman who needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And yes, I know that was written to a minister. And yes, I know that applies specifically to the ministry. But I tell you, it applies to each and every one of you. Because I'm not to learn for you. I proclaim the gospel. But I can't and I shouldn't presume to think for you. We live in a world where there are some people who think they have the right to think for us. Okay? Reject that. You need to have enough background to know whether I'm telling you the truth or not. The scripture talks about churches that tried those who say they are apostles and are not. How do you do that? How do you test an apostle? By the word. How do you test a prophet? By the word. How do you test a sermon? By the word. Be noble like the Bereans who heard with all readiness of mind. You know, there's a place for skepticism in our world, but some people have taken it to a fine art. Okay? You're not called to be the skeptic. You're called to hear with all readiness of mind and search the scriptures to see if these things are so. So it's somewhere in the middle. You know, you're not to believe everything, you know, hook, line, and sinker. Think about that for a moment. What is that word picture all about? Hook, line, and sinker. Because if you swallow everything hook, line, and sinker, guess what's going to be on the plate tonight? Okay? On the other hand, you're not to be so skeptical that you don't believe anything. That doesn't go... that, That falls into an inescapable pit. Okay, I'm going to tell you about Descartes. Rene Descartes. Okay? Anybody remember cogito ergo sum? That's Latin. It means I think, therefore I am. He decided to doubt everything. Everything. Even his own senses. You know, we could be in the matrix, right? But the only thing he could not doubt was that he was doubting. It's kind of a semantic argument. But the only thing he couldn't doubt was that he was actually thinking. I'm doubting. I think, therefore I am. So he was able to um, get to the point where he could prove his own existence to himself. Not to you, but to himself. Okay? But then that was it. That was as far as he could go. Unless he assumed, assumed a benign deity that was not fooling him with his senses. You know, you have to assume you're not in the matrix. 
Because there's no way that you, within the matrix, could determine whether or not you're in the matrix. And maybe some of you know what I'm talking about. Okay? So, we need to have, we need to be just skeptical enough that we, we follow the word. We follow his word and do what his word teaches. Not necessarily what men teach. And the other thing too is just because a man is right in one point doesn't mean he's right in another point. Or just because a man is wrong in one point doesn't mean he's wrong in every point. Okay? We're human beings. We make mistakes. Everyone in this room has said something stupid unless there's a kid over here that can't talk yet. Okay? And it's only a matter of time, right? And those of you who are honest with yourself know what I'm talking about. So we have to, we must speak, my, my, my mom used to say that her tongue got over her eye teeth and she couldn't see what she was saying. Okay? We have to, we have to give that liberty. We have to give that to others that we expect to receive ourselves. But again, you personally are responsible for what you believe. I'm going to do the best I can to declare unto you what the Lord has taught me. To preach the whole counsel of God. That's a scary thought altogether, isn't it? But you are still responsible for what you believe. Search. Don't take me at face value. Search the scriptures. Make sure that I'm telling you the truth. Then there are two reasons for this. One is because I could, I might be not telling you the truth. I could personally be deceived. I'm sure that there are a lot of people preaching heresy that honestly believe the heresy they're preaching. They're sincere in it. Just because a man's sincere doesn't mean he's right. Okay? The other thing is, you will never understand it better than when you see it for yourself. That's another reason why it's so critical that we teach our children. It's good for them, but it's even better for us. You look in the world that we're living in, and everywhere you look, you see anemic Christians, malnourished Christians that honestly don't have a clue. They really don't. They can't see the lies that Satan has sprinkled into their lives. They can't see the lies that are coming from their pulpits. They're they're oblivious. And one of the reasons I believe that is, is because parents have delegated the teaching of Jesus and these truths to others. And that hurts children and that hurts parents. First of all, it hurts children because... Okay. Who's here got a kid old enough to know that at one point in their life, their favorite word was why? Okay, I see a couple parents. Yes, you know exactly what I'm talking about. That's a good thing. For two reasons. First of all, it's going to make you figure out why. Because they will ask you whys that you never thought of before. Okay? Yeah, some parents know exactly what I'm talking about. You ever put your mom on the spot? Look at her laughing. She knows you did. And if you didn't, your brother did. Because I know my kids do. 
They don't always ask a Sunday school teacher the same hard questions they'll ask you. Okay? They don't always have time. And I praise every one of these, that, these people that lead family devotions. I, I really do. I think that's a great thing. I never was able to make that work. And that's not how I was raised. Okay? The scripture talks about whenever you get up and whenever you sit down. God says, I'm going to tell you to do weird things. And your, your children are going to ask you, why am I doing this weird thing? And then you tell them. You're going to pass this weird thing. And they're going to say, why? What is that there for? And you tell them. As my kids, my favorite teaching location was the automobile. Because they were captive audiences. You can't get away from me now. Anyway. So, you are on the battlefield. You're on the front line. And, and, and I'll read this. I'm almost hesitant to turn to Ephesians because I could spend the rest of the day there and that's not what my, that was not my intention whatsoever. But, finally, brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Okay? There's going to be a whole lot of wrestling that we need to do. It's not like it's new. We've been wrestling for a long time. But the powers of darkness have, are, are in a position to really make things bad. And it is up to us. God has called us to be the pillar and ground of the truth. Not just Elder Stephen, every one of us is to be the pillar and ground of the truth. And you carry the truth with you everywhere you go. And I don't mean that you have to accost people on the street. I wish I knew exactly who said this because it's been misattributed. And I know I'm not quoting it right, but that's okay. It goes like this. Preach the gospel. Preach it in the morning. Preach it in the evening. Preach it when you go out. Preach it when you come in. Preach it wherever you go. And if absolutely necessary, use words. Okay? Live it. Oh, you will not, you will shine like a bright light like a candle in a dark place if you just live the word, live the gospel, live the truth that Jesus Christ is. Imagine what a light a person would be if they simply treated every human being they came in contact with as if this is somebody for whom Christ died. Imagine. Imagine the change in homes that would be if husbands and wives really thought for a moment before they interacted with one another. This is someone for whom Christ died. And I've been married 30 years. I know this is a whole lot easier to say than it is to do. Okay? <laughs> Finally, the battle, the victory is the Lord's. We've got to remember that. The victory is the Lord's. When it's all said and done, we are unprofitable servants. When we go forth to war, remember the battle is the Lord's. We can't do it alone. We all have to do our part, but the victory is 
the Lord's and let us glorify his holy name. May the Lord richly bless you all. I want to continue in the book of Exodus, actually backing up to the first part of the book of Exodus. And you're able to um, go home and read, if you want to, the first 13 chapters of the book of Exodus. And as you read the, uh, the 13 chapters of the book of Exodus, um, I want you to look for something as you begin to read. Last week, I attempted to put a title on the message, and I'll do that again this morning. God's purpose in the plague. God's purpose in the plague. Now, some folks say what we're experiencing is clearly, um, that it's very clear that it's the result of the judgment of God upon our land. Some folks doubt whether it is or not, or that it just happened. This morning I talked to Sister Stanlin, dear sister that we've known for years. Brother Mark received text from her husband just a week or so before he died. Very physically fit and quickly was overtaken with COVID. When I called her this morning, one of the first days that she's going to church, I said, Sister Stanley, how's your family? She said, oh, Brother Stephen, I don't know if I can tell you this without crying. She said, this week alone, I've lost two brothers to COVID as well. God made it clear in Exodus that he was behind what was going on. When I heard the news that a few weeks ago that there's a new strand of COVID that's coming out and that it's actually more contagious than the first, the first thing I thought about was the plagues that God brought upon the Egyptians and God had a purpose in it. Now, clearly, there were folks on both sides, the Egyptians and the Israelites, that doubted and did not see God's hand in it. And God continued to allow the plagues to come one by one and I actually wrote them down and, and you can go through and, and, and write them down. It would be a really good exercise for you and you would get a, a lot of, it'd be a great benefit to you to go through and read this. But I'm telling you, it was one right after another. And God had a purpose in it. And whether or not we believe that God is in this situation, 
There's certainly some lessons that were learned in the plagues that God brought upon the Egyptians and upon Pharaoh. There were clearly some lessons that were learned that we could learn as well, whether or not you believe that God is in the midst of this. There's clearly some lessons. And so as you go through and read the 13 chapters about the plagues, one after another that occurred, and we'll not go into all of those. I'll just touch on them here. Take a notepad and write down alongside as you're reading some of what God's purposes were in bringing about the plagues. And I'll touch on some that that I believe I learned. And as you read it, you can touch on those as well. God's purpose in the plague. God had a people, the children of Israel, that it says in Exodus chapter 1, and as you begin to read it, it says that they were fruitful and they multiplied and they grew. And Pharaoh began to be threatened by them. Do you know that sometimes today folks feel threatened by Christians? And when somebody feels threatened by Christians, one of the main approaches is to get rid of them or to suppress them. And that's exactly what Pharaoh did right here. Pharaoh said, you know, they're growing and they're multiplying and they're prospering and they're hard workers. Probably some of them had some of the work ethics that some of those old time North Carolina folks had. They were hard workers and they were prospering and Pharaoh began to feel threatened about it. And so Pharaoh thought the best way to handle this is to oppress them. And he gave instructions to the taskmasters. They were to build bricks. And so he increased the quota for them. And then as they continued to prosper and multiply and grow, he decided he'd make it even harder for them. And he said, we're not going to provide you the straw. You can go through and read this all yourself. Exodus chapter one and chapter two. We're not going to continue to uh, provide the straw for you to make the bricks. We want you to go out and gather up the straw to make the bricks. But we're still going to keep this unreasonable quota at a, at a baseline that we want you to maintain, even though we're adding more to your tasks. To oppress the Israelites. And it says that God blessed them that even though they were afflicted and that the Egyptians placed more and more afflictions upon them. It says, and it's interesting, and only this could be by God. And we might see some similarities. I hope we might in the day in which we live. But he said, the more they were afflicted, the more they multiplied and grew. You know, isn't that amazing about the Christian That's the life of the child of God. The more that one's afflicted, the more they're multiplied and grow. 
Let's go through and I'll just mention some of these plagues. I'll mention some of them. First of all, he calls Moses. And he says, Moses, I'm going to call you to lead my people out from under the Egyptian bondage. Now, Moses said he gave all kinds of excuses for not to go. He could have used one of old age. Moses was 80 years old at the time. But Moses said, first of all, God, these people are not going to believe me. I'm not a leader. I don't have the skills. I don't have the qualifications. He says, if I tell them to follow me, they're not going to follow me. And he says, who am I going to even say told me to do it? And God says, you tell him that I am hath sent you. You tell the people that I am has called you and that I am is leading you. Then Moses begins to say, well, well, Lord, I, 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 I'm not of an eloquent speech. I don't know very many ministers that feel like they've mastered the role of eloquent speech. Moses said, I'm not of an eloquent speech. And, and God just turned to him and he said, Moses, by the way, who is it that made your tongue? I made your tongue, Moses, and I can bless you to be able to speak. And he said, I can also bless you with a spokesman, Aaron, as well to go along. Well, Moses was not really volunteering for the job. And, you know, sometimes even Christians are not necessarily volunteering for the job. But God calls us, as Elder Smith brought out, to do things not necessarily to benefit us, although it always does, but to honor him and to help others. Now, look at what happens right here. Moses, God told Moses to cast the rod upon the ground and it became a serpent. God told Moses to take the rod and, and cast it into the water and it, uh, it turned it to blood. And he said, Moses, Brother Chuck brought out the rod. And it's symbolic very much of the power of God. I appreciate that, Brother Chuck, and I, and I agree that the folks were encouraged as they could see the rod. They could probably look back and remember some of the deliverances and they could remember some of the miracles that took place at the hand of God. They gave God the glory and the credit for it. But he said, Moses, you're going to have this rod and there's going to be some mighty works that are going to be performed. And it's going to get the attention of Pharaoh it's going to get the attention of the Israelites and even some of the Egyptians are going to realize it. Now, look at what happens. He says, I want you to go to Pharaoh and say, ask Pharaoh to let the Israelites go a three days distance away from the Egyptians and worship God. Worship God in the way that they felt like that they had the liberty and the right to worship God. Pharaoh wouldn't let them do it. In fact, when God told Moses, he said, I want you to go and ask Pharaoh. But he says, I'm just going to go ahead and tell you he's not going to let you do it. Now, I don't know if I'd want to go ask if I knew that the answer was no before I got there. But God had a purpose in it. And 
And, and here are some of the purposes in why God did not deliver them on the first plague. We'll see that. God could have delivered them on the first plague if he had chosen to. God could have granted deliverance in the first plague if he had chosen to do that. It says that God, this was hard for me to understand. It says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Now I have to tell you that the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked above all. And who can know it? All that God has to do to harden someone's heart is remove his presence just a little bit. And our heart is hard, naturally speaking. We need God to tender our heart and to soften our heart. But all that God has to do to harden our heart is to just remove his presence. I don't want God to remove his presence. Here it says that he sent the plague of frogs. I'm not a real big fan of frogs. Now Tim was and maybe Luke and folks like that, but they'd play with them. But all I got were warts when you would play with frogs. I'm not really a fan of frogs. But when you have frogs in the bed with you, when you have frogs in the house, when you have frogs you sit down to eat and frogs are jumping around in your plate and jumping around in the food, pretty soon you'd get tired of frogs. And that's exactly what happened. God sent him a plague of frogs. Then he sent, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but anyone that's ever experienced this, I'm sure it's not a pleasant experience. Back in the olden days, they used to, down in West Texas, more than one occasion, they'd line the children up at school. Has this ever happened to any of you that they'd start looking through your hair? Anybody ever have that happen? Yep. Did they find anything? All right. <laughs> The next plague was lice. Lice were everywhere. Everywhere. They were looking through the children's hair and it was there. They were looking in the beds. They were looking in the kitchens. It was everywhere. Then the next plague was flies. Then the next plague was for the cattle and the oxygen and the sheep. And it was, a, it was an illness that, um, that they died. But it was interesting that it was only the, the, uh, the cattle and the ox, oxen and the sheep of the Egyptians and not of the Israelites that died. And after each one of these plagues, Moses would go to Pharaoh and he'd say, Now, Pharaoh, let, uh, let my people go. Let them go out and worship God. And when they were in the midst of the plague, as the plagues continued on, Pharaoh would say in the midst of the plague, he would call them and he would recognize uh, that, that, uh, that they had the power to call upon their God to deliver them from those plagues. And so Pharaoh would say, if you'll ask God to stop these plagues from coming, I'll let the people go. And just as soon as the plague stopped, Pharaoh would change his mind and he'd say, I'm not going to let him go. Now, Pharaoh had some magicians and even the magicians of Pharaoh told Pharaoh, they said, I think it was after the lice or the flies. They told Pharaoh, they said, 
These things are happening as the result of the finger and hand of Almighty God. Even the magicians recognized it. It took a while for even the Israelites to realize that God was in the matter. But God heard their cries and God heard their pleas. And several times, even through the deliverance and even when leading up to what Brother Chuck was preaching to us about, that that when hardships would come, the Israelites would go back to Moses and they'd say, Moses, we, we, we actually had it better in Egypt. And sometimes we're really we have a short uh, memory span sometimes of maybe what we've been delivered from. It goes on down and it. It tells us here that there were there were um, there was a, another plague of boils that came upon the Egyptians. Now, if you've ever had a boil, it's it's very uncomfortable, and you just can't wait to get rid of it. And these folks were consumed with boils, and then they had uh, they had locust. Oh, before they had locust, it was hell. And hell came and whatever animals were left, the hell destroyed the animals and just a tremendous amount of hell that came forth. Then it was locusts. And then God sent another plague. And and, and so Pharaoh is getting closer and closer to finally agreeing to let the people go. But God continues to send one plague after another. And then God says that he sent a plague of darkness. It was dark. Three days and three nights. And it was described as being so dark you could feel it. You could feel the darkness. Now, I don't know anywhere around here that it's that dark. You'll see light somewhere. But it was so dark you, you could feel it, it said. And then the last plague that God sent upon the Egyptians... Before Pharaoh finally allowed the people to go. Was the death of the firstborn of the Egyptians. So as you go home and read. And I hope you will. The first 13 chapters of the book of Exodus. Leading up to what brother Chuck preached to us about. I hope you'll try to look at and write down some of the things that you see as you go through and read it and and glean from and see if there's any purposes that God had that He might show you in the plagues. If indeed God is involved with the plague that we're experiencing right now or plagues, should it not be that we should desire To learn what God's lesson would have for us to be. Let's look at some of the lessons that you might glean as you read it. God reminds us that he sees all the afflictions of his people. God was moved with compassion when he saw the great afflictions of That his people were experiencing. And so one of the things that God teaches us in these times. Is that God is moved with compassion. God sees our afflictions. And that God cares. 
God saw the afflictions of the Israelites. He saw the burdens of the Israelites. You may think that God doesn't know and that God doesn't care. But God sees and God knows and God cares. You may think God is not aware of what all is going on right now or what's going on around us or what's going on in our life. But God knows and God sees and God cares. The next one. One of the purposes that God has, I believe, in allowing us to experience these challenges is that God gives his people special grace in times of need. When you have a certain trial, a certain difficulty, a certain hardship, you have the promise and the assurance that God's grace is sufficient for you. In fact, we're taught in 2 Corinthians that His grace is sufficient for us in every time of need. And so if God doesn't, if if God doesn't, if God is in the matter of allowing or bringing these plagues upon us, and if if there's more than one or two or three or ten or eleven, if that is the case, as Brother Asa Mosley said, things may get a whole lot better or they may get a whole lot worse. But the good news is, if it gets worse, then God's grace is sufficient for his people. So that's the promise. I can't tell you if the plagues are going to stop or if the plagues are going to continue. I can't tell you if it's going to get better. But I can tell you this much, that God's grace is sufficient for you. Every one of you here, God's grace is sufficient. So no matter what we're going to face, his grace is sufficient for us. Now, I told Brother Tom this the other day. I've had a few really, really hard weeks. And I'm not saying that to to get sympathy from you. I'm saying this to remind you of something. That when I have a really, really hard week, you know what I do? I try to go back and listen to my own sermons in my mind. And sometimes it encourages me a little bit. But I hope it encourages you a whole lot. Here's another one. God reminds us through our plagues or our trials or our difficulties he reminds us of our need of him you know what sometimes i forget that and when i go through a great big trial or difficulty i'm reminded that i need the lord i need him right now today in a big way i do the next one god shows us his power God shows us who's in charge and who's in control. We say we believe in a sovereign God, and we do. We believe that God saves his people, and we believe he's 100% effective in that. But shouldn't we believe that God is also sovereign in the areas of our life? God shows us his power. Here's another one that I just picked up on. This ought to be encouraging. For some of us that have been labeled by Catherine and John Gill as being old age at 60. This is really, uh, Catherine gave me a plaque to hang on the wall of the description of a 60 year old man. And it describes John Gill saying it's old age. And I thought, you know, I just don't know where I want to hang that. Maybe in the closet somewhere or out in the shed or something like that. But 
But here's some encouraging notes. Did you know that when God called Moses to lead the people out of Egypt, that Moses was 80 years old? And then he got him a partner to go along with him. And you know how old Aaron was? You'd have thought he had gotten a, a young man like Danny or Brother David or somebody like that. He got an 84-year-old to go with him. So was Moses and Aaron going out to lead the people out of the land of Egypt to an 80 and 84-year-old man. That's about like Brother Mark and Brother Stephen in a few years <laughs> to lead them out. But I can give you a real-life example of that. Brother Compton. Brother Compton didn't start preaching the gospel until he was past 60 years of age and he preached the gospel 40 years. So one lesson that we have right here that God has is that even at, in our latter years in life that God can use his people for a purpose. He sure can. Another purpose that God has is that God works things in such a way that His own people and even others will know that He is God. God wants His people to know that He's God. But sometimes God even reveals it to others. God was revealing it. And the, the magicians of Pharaoh said, you know what, this is happening because of God. And then after about seven or eight plagues, Pharaoh begins to say, you know what? I think this is God that's bringing this on. And then he'd forget. God wants people to know that he is and that he's in charge. Here's another one. You may say, well, none of those apply to me. Let me ask you this. See if this one does. Oftentimes, God brings about the trials the plagues, the difficulties in our life to bring about what the scriptures refer to as repentance. What does that mean? It just simply means a change. Anybody here that can say, I don't need any change whatsoever. Sometimes God puts a little bit of pressure on us to bring about areas that we look at our life and say, maybe I ought to change. In my life. Here's a couple of more. God shows forth his power. Here's another one that God, one of his purposes in the plague, is that God brings us to a place of humility. He does. I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel like that. If I'm in control or if I'm in charge or if I've got a handle on things, that I can sort of get by. But when the problems and the plagues and the trials and the difficulties are bigger than we are, then we realize that our only strength and power is in the Lord. And so sometimes the trials, the plagues, the difficulties... Listen, there's some things going on right now that are bigger than us. And it ought to humble us. It ought to. Just a couple more. 
God shows in bringing or allowing plagues to come upon folks that God puts a difference between people. He does. Romans, Paul tells us, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. God clearly, and God is the one that does it, places a difference. God is sovereign. He goes on down to tell us, he says, I'm the potter and you are the clay. And if I choose to make a lump to honor me, I can do that. Or if I choose to make a lump to dishonor, I'm God, I'm sovereign. And God clearly manifests a difference. God is the one that does that. And then one of the other purposes of the plagues. God told them when it was over with. He said, I want you to put up some things, some stones of remembrance. I want you to teach this to your children. As Brother Chuck said, he went on to say, I want you to teach it to your grandchildren. To your children's children. And I want you to remind them of what you've experienced. I seriously doubt that many, I mean, I'd honestly like to forget 2020. I'm all signing up for 2000. I was so excited. I was so excited when on the first check I wrote and put 2021. Usually I don't remember to do that. This year I had no problem whatsoever. It's 2021. I was so excited about that. I hope and pray that God will bless it to be a better year. But if he doesn't, he's promised to be with us. He surely has. But he sometimes sets up these plagues and he wants it to be remembered because he wants us to learn a lesson and he wants us to pass it on to our children and our children's children it may or may not be that God is in the midst of it I tend to think that he is but whether or not you believe that God is in the midst of it there's clearly some lessons that all of us could learn If we look at the example of the plagues that God brought about upon the Egyptians, one after another, after another. And you know when they ended? They ended when God was ready for them to end. They did. God is sovereign. May God bless you.